Good afternoon, everybody. Good afternoon. How do you know when they're listening to this? They could be listening to any time, but we are recording in the afternoon, so therefore a local greeting would be appropriate. Well, it's not a Saturday, so that's, you Ooh, know. what day is it? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's Rona Day number 347. <laughs> Rona Day 347. It's... Uh, Thursday. Yeah, we're organised this it week. It is one forty-four p.m. Just a and I actually recorded this fabulous interview with John Swainston, the fabulous week. John Swainston, last week because we're getting organised. Yes, organised. Oh, I'm yawning. Again. Don't yeah, yawn. I don't know. I don't know how organised we are, but we're just. I'm trying to not spend my entire weekend editing, <laughs> editing podcasts and putting them up. Um, it's actually a really big commitment, isn't it? It's a lot of fun around. You know, I was thinking about... It's not a lot of work. It's a lot of farting around because work, I'm up for work. I love work. But this is work. Yeah, but it's not. It's farting around. It's waiting for computers to load and internets to internet, you know. Right. It's that kind of crap. Yeah, there is a bit of waiting because the upload to... We're using Squarespace and rendering to host the and podcast. Yeah, it's pfft, and rendering the Don't videos. give them an advert. They're you not have, sponsoring you us. You have the fastest laptop in the building, fastest computer in the building, As and it's I still should. not fast enough. As I should. Look at my very old Mac. Yeah, well, you know, you look at it what lovingly it? more than you Mac- do me. So MacBook you know. Air, that's the words. Yeah, so the Mac- friggin' Mac- Air that nobody cares about anymore. I love the Air. Um, so let's get back onto the track of things. <laughs> um, so the podcast is like I was going to raise the idea that you know we're like oh, let's just do a podcast. It anything what do you mean? like anything you take on becomes. Well, it's actually a lot more than the idea is great. Now let's just do this, but it's a pro- it's a project. It's a serious project too, and it's uh, how many hours a week do you think we're consuming? I'm um, probably two hours of the recording and dealing, setting up interviews. Yeah, and then there'd probably be per per episode for me a good four hours. Yeah. Of so probably taking around. probably taking us six. Six hours. and look, But that also includes promotion. But you can't, like, you can't do anything without also promoting it. Yeah, that's right. And, and it's, I think, a big part of the success of what we've done is the, is the promotion you've, you've put with it. I mean, what goes out to our Instagram stories, it's really cool little snippets. And that's a, a, a massive effort, just cutting all that stuff up, making good. And, you know, with the podcast itself, we don't do any uh, cuts. We don't do any edits with it. What's in the show is in the show. What's in the show is in the show. And I actually really love that. And I think that's what the way I wanted it to be from the beginning, that this is an open conversation that can go anywhere. And I sit here with my so-called agenda uh, like yeah, this. Yeah, you are organised. My hipsters, hipster PDA. Yep. And I hope to get down through the points, but there's no way that we end up sticking to these sorts of things. Yeah. Uh, so it's, it's a real challenge. And I would encourage anyone who's, who, who runs around like Kate, and I do both when we've got these fabulous ideas, we take them on, you know, actually scoping out the back end, getting a feel about how much commitment these sorts of things are going to be. Uh, and that's why we use programs Yeah, because like you kind of don't want to start a podcast and then do three episodes and go, uh, <laughs> it feels like Because the big part of, the po- of a podcast is the regularity and the consistency of it. Yeah. Well, the big part of anything... Which is why you're fundamentally you. in charge of the podcast because <laughs> I am regular and consistent like... Not at all. all right, well, that's fine. That's why we work so well together. Uh, but I use uh, here's a, here's somebody should be show sponsor OmniFocus. Oh, Jesus, anyone else? Yeah. No, what are you? Time. Who are you wearing today, Paul? No, Saba. That doesn't work. No Saba. one's trying desperately to and copy I don't know who you. Did my fabulous. That's a great T-shirt. Who gave you that? Did I, I give it. you that? No, no, I bought it on the uh, 
the interwebs. On the interwebs, okay. So let's go to our guest and talk about our guest. Yes, John Swainston. John does, has a bit of uh, – there's Everything. a whole lot of interesting stuff. That what has he about. not done? I know, it's fabulous, isn't it? But, you know, talking about I bought this T-shirt online from an international artist who had created the drawing and I bought it as a T-shirt. The internet has opened up so much of the world. Oh, and, and how about the kids on Redbubble? Oh, yeah. Our, <laughs> our kids are doing T-shirts, are making T-shirts. Designing T-shirts. Designing T-shirts. Like they're designing the design on the T-shirt. They put they upload the design. Like it's a copyright nightmare, but they upload the T-shirt design to Redbubble yep. and then they can get a T-shirt made for themselves. But then other people buy their T-shirts who like their T-shirt designs yep. and they get paid Every time somebody got one of Joe's designs um, as a face mask. <laughs> as a corona mask. As a corona mask, which I find ex- – Joe's made like 150 bucks. It's crazy. Well, my point was I was saying that we talked at to part of the interview with John because he was a distributor for Nikon for years. So part of the interview we talked about international uh, commerce and – and how uh, I know it's making this podcast sound exciting now, aren't we? But, but international how, commerce. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but you know what? He also talks about the Beatles and that one time where he sold Ringo Asteria. Where he sold Ringo Asteria, and they just like fully hung out and like yeah. fully got stoned. But he didn't say that. No, he drank whiskey. Yeah, and the rest. No, he didn't. There's no chance. He's a very sensible, wonderful man. I know he is. Anyhow, so yeah, it's a great podcast. I hope you guys uh, have it's a listen to it. Really, like, yeah. And do you know what? I found it really interesting. The bit where he was talking about, like, I, there were a lot of things in there that he was saying that really related to some of the stuff that Ollie's been putting on his on his oh, Instagram yeah. and some of the stuff that Sai has talked about. You know, like Ollie's got this obsession with shooting these hilariously realistic images, not realistic, but candid is the word probably, of kids at weddings. Yes. You know, throwing fits and peeling their clothes off and generally being kids. And and he talks about that and, you know, like it's just, it's it's kind of funny. He's like a whole lot of ideas that we're now kind of seeing again, he's he's kind of already done. Um and the best he hasn't hasn't already done them in the in that he would never say, Oh, that's been done. No, like John no. is ever fresh. Everything he, everything he does, and everything he comes across. Oh, he he's seen a lot of it before, but he doesn't pass that on to people. And, and he's he's not cynical. He's so generous. All. Not cynical at yeah, all. That's the that's a wonderful thing. Uh, about that bit where he talked about the the news guys that having only four frames. Yeah. Yeah, that was that incredible. Was just that was actually bonkers. That, that reminds me. I didn't bring it up with John because it was, he was saying his version of a similar story. We, uh, when the Australian Grand Prix was in Adelaide, which we had for a while before Melbourne stole it, we're looking at you, Melbourne. You, you suck, Melbourne. Um, before Melbourne stole it, um, yeah. we used to do all the four hundred pro- years ago. No one listening know, remembers know, it because we're the oldest people on the planet. But we used to process all the slide film, E6 film, for the international press. So they would bring the film, we'd go over to the track, pick up the film, bring it back here, process it, take it back to the track, which was 100 metres away of the track, but the actual offices were maybe, you know, a kilometre away. We'd do a runner over there. And we'd go back there and then the press would come in at a certain time knowing it's about a two-hour turnaround and they'd be looking through their stuff and and go. So one time we had this... Uh, this guy come. We should interview him one day. Simon Stanbury, who's a working uh, 
editorial event type photographer, but a former press photographer. Yeah. His father used to work with my grandfather. He's a bit younger than my grandfather, but his father, Bert Stanbury. Um, Bert Stanbury. Bert, what a great name. And, and Bert <laughs> was retired, but on the, I don't know, it was the first Grand Prix, so we're talking late 80s now. Bert went with Simon for a day out. Now, Bert had given up photography. He'd retired completely. And uh, Bert would have grown up shooting five by four inch as, as a press photographer. So, you know, large... Uh, 10 Huge. by 13 centimetre negatives, uh, a real skill. And if you went to the football uh, to photograph the match, you would be given three double darks or a septograph, which is six shots. You get six photographs to capture the football. Like which the is, whole game? The whole the entire game. And that well, would include... About that, six moments of interest in one football game in, seems a bit excessive. Well, that, that's <laughs> correct. It's a good point for those of us who love sports. Uh, uh, so, the, so six pictures. So you'd... There may be a front cover picture in if there's a great bit of action caught. There'd definitely be photographs for the sports page. So we're talking six pictures to represent a match. At any rate, Simon brings Bird into our stand and says, give me some film. Dad's with me today. I want to load him up. And I said, great, no problems. And I'm passing over rolls of – and they were using uh, Fuji Velvia uh, 50 in the, on the sunny days. And they would push it uh, two stops – so they would rate it at 200 before they moved to any other film. They love Velvia. So he gave – Simon had his, like, 40 rolls and his pockets were bulging. <laughs> and his dad, we gave – and his dad said, oh, just give us a couple of rolls. Simon said, no, Dad, you can take him 10. So he loaded his pockets up and Bert's pockets are bulging. Anyway, they're out for the whole day, walking around the track, having a great time. Come back in at the end of the day, Simon's pouring them out of his pockets, you know, trying to write notes as to what's push and what's pull and what's what. <laughs> And we're, I'm writing crazy things down and then Bert pulls out. And no, no, he didn't even have one in his pocket. He opened the back, wound it up into the camera, pulled it out the back and he had shot one, not even a roll of film. Oh, Thomas said, Dad, where's the rest of it? He said, I just shot a roll today. And, um, and uh, Simon said, whatever. Anyway, we processed it. He came back the next morning because it was an overnight process that stage, end of the day. And uh, Bert got this picture that he then... Just because he was a retired press photographer and is with his son, I think he was working on his son's, uh, uh, you know, like, um, with his son. So it was his son put it in the press awards and he won an award oh, with kidding. one frame that he got out of, I don't know, maybe 30 pictures out of a whole day of shooting Formula One. So that skill of uh, you've only got X amount of shots. And John talks about that, well, which, which is a bit right. of an old trope with and film we, photographers. we did that with the shoot, the free shoot that we did with Ollie in oh, Melbourne, yeah. Yeah. where we got all the photographers together and they were only allowed, what was it? Two front. No, there was three front. Two, two or no. four? God, we're There's so th old. Was, it was only six there was months four ago. Sets. There was four sets setups. Yeah. And at each setup they had three seconds. No, they were only allowed to press the button X number of three times. Three times then? Yeah. It was three or something like that. Yeah, but it was, it was something. Yeah. We got that sexy video that the beautiful right. Nathan we'll Caso link to did. That. We'll link to that video. Thank you, Nathan Caso. Yeah. But anyway, John's interview is cool. It's not just about... But what, you, you're just, just running over me. Yes, always. You're running over what I was going to say. Because okay. for the people that did that class, they found it incredibly oh, challenging and interesting yeah, yeah, to yeah. be restricted like that. From being able to shoot 10,000 frames a second, yeah. they could just shoot this very specific amount for it. And they had to really think about it and the exposure and everything. It changed exactly, changed completely how yeah. they were doing it. Yeah, yeah. And we want to, when the Rona quits being a we'll bitch. We'll do it again. We we'll do it again. On the national, like, true. That was totally. just in Melbourne. It's good fun. The, the, 
I mean, you've always said to me, there's nothing an artist hates more than a blank canvas. Oh. They want restrictions, constraints. Totally. They yeah. want, and you know, we do uh, every year. We haven't done it for a couple of years. We did a thing called the Film Challenge, where we sent people out with one roll of film, mm. and we changed it every year. Like it may have been an evening shoot, and all they had was a hundred ISO film. It may have been you've got to shoot medium format. Uh, it was always a challenge, uh, and then the big part of the fun of it was going out in their little groups. They got the pictures. They came back. We'd process it. They'd have lunch uh, or whatever dinner. They come back, and then they go through the films on a on a light box. We made it transparency film, and then they would edit together. So they would be huddling over the light box and saying, "Oh, what a great shot!" Film. Oh, yeah, tranny film. Four stops of latitude. So. Again, tight restraints making a, a bit of sport out of it. We should, mm. we should do that again. Huh? Yeah, we should. Absolutely. But John, John's interview is not just about, like, it's not what you expect. It's a, such no. a rich interview that goes through so many. I'm going to get him back when his book's launched. Yep. And we need to talk about his book. We need to talk about his process for his book. And for him, and look, he's not retired. He's over a time. Both he's books, like, the Corona one and the oh, Cathedral well that's not, that's one. A, that's a, is it a book he's doing in the Corona Yeah, one? I thought it was I book. think it's just a series on the web, but it's, oh, it's it, it is book. amazing uh, that stuff he did at Sydney in lockdown. Yeah. So, yeah, uh, he's a, I, I would class him as a Renaissance man and he's someone who is he's fairly a gentleman. young. He's a, he's a gentleman, yes. and He's, he's a door holder. I notice you haven't sworn he, at all. Don't gosh. swear, please don't. Because John is not a sweary person. That's because he's a gentleman. He's a door holder and a chair puller and, a you know, he's one Careful, of those. Like you know, pull the chair oh, out for the person, chuck yes. it underneath the lady and all that. No, you know, he wonderful. does all those nice things. So, people, enjoy John Swainston. Yes. And we will see you after the interview. Yes. Where we're going to argue about roads. You were ahead of me anyway. Yeah, well, well we'll sort it out in post. <laughs> We'll let the technicians worry about it. Yep. Okay, I'm here on the call with John Swainson, one of the people that I have admired my entire life and I feel has been around my entire life. I don't I don't actually know that for sure because there's a period in your life where you just don't know what happens. You've always been there, John, and you've always been there with a camera in your hand. And and everyone every time I've heard someone speak about you publicly, they've mentioned the camera in the hand. You are an eternal photographer. Uh, John, why, why pick up a camera? Where did that all begin? It's, it's really quite hard to, to remember, but I borrowed my brother's camera when I was 11 because my mother was doing some research at the London Linnean Society and she had befriended an American researcher who said, I'd love to have a picture of me sitting at my desk here in London. Oh. And so I said, oh, I'll come and take the picture. So I, I took this folding uh, Kodak uh, Retinet, uh, which had a beautiful bellows system that just sort of came out and clicked with a wonderfully sure click. And uh, I knew nothing about what I was doing other than the fact that I'd learned that the paper behind the 120 uh, film was an important part of keeping it dark. Uh, when I was eight, I was given a Kodak Duomatic and the first three rolls 
I thought, well, the paper obviously isn't needed, so I just pulled that off and then <laughs> put the film in the camera. So uh, that was uh, an initiation. And amazingly, a very good portrait emerged, beautifully window lit. I knew nothing about why it was so good, except that he said, goodness, you must have been a, a, a photographer all your life. At 11, that was quite a, quite a thing to say. So that sort of piqued my interest. So, yeah, well, I mean, I think getting a good response from a, uh, a subject and a result is one of those things that it draws, draws you into it. But it wasn't where you found yourself. Photography, did you, did you play with photography from then on? Or, I mean, no, where did you begin? No, I really didn't. Um, I was much more interested in sound. Um, and I, I started building loudspeakers when I was about 15, uh, loudspeaker enclosures. And I did all the audio for all the school productions. By the time I was 15, I had a Revox um, 736 uh, with, you know, 15 inch reels or whatever they were, 10 inch, 10, 10 and a half inch reels that went at 15 inches per second, not seven <laughs> and a half. Uh, and, uh, you know, I was becoming quite a good recording engineer. And sound was my first sort of 10 years of, uh, you know, uh, adulthood. So you've got a, you've got the voice for radio clearly. Uh, you, you, well, I wanted to be in radio, and uh, that was in the days in England of uh, pirate radio stations. Oh wow! Um, so what's the t give us the dates? What are we talking? So about? we're talking about 1967, 68. So you were uh, on the boat that rocked, were you? No, well, I didn't go out to Radio Caroline because um, I have an inner ear problem that means I only have to look at water, unlike oh, you, no. uh, who just lives on the water. I wish. Uh, so I did uh, voiceovers, um, and um, I remember my test was juicy fruit chewing gum. Right. Had a wonderful, um, you know, double your flavor, double your fun, double mint, double mint, double mint gum. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's one of those things you remember. So this is your medium, really. Uh, I mean, we're doing we're capturing video, but we're uh, we're doing audio as well. There's a lot of similarities in the way that uh, audio works as to as to digital photography, particularly, and I suppose analog to some extent, but certainly digital. It's lined it all up when you think about you know raw files and MP3s and and you know wave files and then how they clip and and edit and microphone technology. So so you are very technical. Uh, I suppose I was. Um, I I learned very quickly about waveforms and rise times in audio, so that I could uh, edit. Uh, we in those days we had magnetic tape, and if you wanted to edit a recording, you had to actually physically cut the tape. Okay. And and that requires a certain amount of courage, I guess. And um, so uh, you know we learned how to do that. And you'd, you'd roll the tape back and forth and it'd go, and, and then you'd know that you actually had to bring it a tiny bit before that so it didn't sound artificial or clipped. Right. Um, that was long before I had access to, to uh, waveforms that I could actually look. Uh, and later on, of course, when we were able to do audio visuals with uh, audio tracks and be able to look at the audio track and do the editing electronically. And the synchronization, Again, yeah. It, it was very familiar to me, although it was then in a digital format. Yeah, yeah. Um, but your first, your first job, you, you followed the audio train through, didn't you? you, and you... Yes, I did. I, I, I worked in a hi-fi store, and, and the, it was North London's premier hi-fi store, I think is fair to say. I was very fortunate. 
Uh, I'd been a customer there, and when I left university a little earlier than had been planned, um, uh, that very elite group that did not complete their studies, um, <laughs> the, the, uh, the, the boss gave me the opportunity, and it was a boom time for hi-fi and home installations. And I got that the, the customer list was all the artists, all the um, musicians, uh, all the filmmakers, um, because we were really quite near Pinewood and all the other great film studios, and they all lived in the neighborhood. Wow. And I had the privilege of installing the hi-fi for some extraordinarily famous people at the time. Wow. Uh, I did Ringo Starr. I did <laughs> Cat Stevens. Um, I, and I, the most interesting uh, was an American composer who came to England, a guy called Dmitry Tionkin. Uh, he was a film score uh, writer, and uh, he had Fort Knox for security around his house. He left California right. because he was afraid of being mugged. And needless to say, he'd only lived in Hampstead for about six months when someone came to the door, <laughs> his housekeeper was out, and he got mugged. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know. You it wasn't he, Your Honour. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So he was he he was one of your clients that you installed at home, did you, or was it a? Yes, and and in those days, you you would take three or four different sets of loudspeakers to the person's house to optimize the sound for those people, and and so you know you were doing a lot of lifting, and so I was a rake at that stage, always lifting these very heavy loudspeakers, sort of Kef loudspeakers. Uh, quad electrostatics, the wonderful sound of the quad electrostatic ribbon uh, loudspeaker. Um, and and we did a rather interesting show, actually, at the Royal Festival Hall with Ravi Shankar. Oh, yes. Uh, where we had uh, six quad electrostatic loudspeakers on the stage of the Festival Hall to amplify the sitar. And he, he said it was the only loudspeaker that actually reproduced the sound correctly. And, and it was a, a, a truly wonderful opportunity. Well, it would be amazing. And so with, with someone like uh, like Ringo Starr, you would have gone to their house and or was that a case of showing the showroom and what, what you had there? Or No, they wouldn't come to the showroom. They, they yeah. would ring up and or their manager would ring up and say, bring us over some hi-fi system, Ringo wants this. Um, and you'd, you'd arrive with what you thought was appropriate um, and uh, that you assumed a reasonable budget and um, I remember the day when I went to Ringo Starr, uh, the, the, we were in the middle of the power cuts that occurred in England. And I had just finished putting in this wonderful quad system. Um, and uh, the, the power went out just as I was about to do the test. <laughs> and I was uh, 19 or thereabouts. Uh, and he said, oh, well, you, you know, you're just going to have to have uh, a, a little break. And it went on for three hours. And I think between us, we polished off a bottle of scotch <laughs> along with his then wife. And, um, you know, uh, the, the test was, of course, perfect at the end of three hours. I'm sure. Wouldn't matter, <laughs> would it really? <laughs> it wouldn't matter. So did you get into, was, was car, did cars have stereo systems in it as well at that stage? Or was that not part of? Oh, well, yes. Now, I had the first in-car stereo system. Uh, Philips made a die-cast unit that was normally slung underneath your, your um, dashboard. But I decided that I'd put it on the um, transmission tunnel at the back. 
yes. uh, uh, and just rested on there. I built a little bracket. And then I built um, a very sophisticated shelf loudspeaker system. I didn't drill into the, into the shelf because it wasn't my car. Uh, <laughs> it was a company car. Uh, so I just rested this huge loudspeaker, custom-made, on the back parcel shelf, never securing it in any way. So you can imagine the hazard yeah, if yeah, I had yeah. to break hard. It would have come... It would have decapitated me because we didn't have headrests in those days. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, you're 19, you don't think of those things. But I had the best sound in the business, I can tell you. People people would say, can I come and ride in your car just to hear your music? So that obviously was a part of the promotion of the of the business, that you would show people this is possible. And then would the, yeah. that would have led, I suppose, the business to sell car, car setters. Yeah. yeah. Excellent. So tell me, at some stage you would have pivoted to uh, visual from from audio work. How was that transition? When did that happen? So I was fortunate enough to be, uh, we were the biggest dealer for acoustic research loudspeakers, yeah. um, which had been launched in Britain at that time. And uh, the then boss of the audio business at a company called Bell and Howell, yes. uh, that uh, was the distributor for AR, um, said, look, you know, we'd like you to come and work for us. You, you seem to know about the audio business. And, um, Come, come and be a rep for us. So they made projectors, didn't they? Yes. So they were the world's biggest producer of 16 millimeter projectors, which were used in education, and eight millimeter cameras and projectors, uh, which were the, the big home entertainment business. So, you know, from that point of view, uh, it was I was working there. And then after about six months, I said to my boss, I said, this business is never going to make money because, you know, you've made such a massive investment. There's just me for the whole of the UK and I can't get round and we can't get enough dealers and the product's too expensive for the UK market. Um, I think we should close down the business. And a 20 year old who says, uh, please take my job away. Um, I got the yeah. uh, interest of the uh, managing director of the company who wasn't my boss said, now, young man, I, I see that you want to lose your job by closing down the business. Why? And and I seemed to say enough things that, that he liked that uh, he said, well, look, I tell you what, we will close the business down because you're right, looking at the numbers, but um, uh, come and work for us in the audiovisual business. And that's how I got into audiovisual. Um, and um, that was learning about striped film, um, syncing, you know, uh, mag stripe uh, pictures, uh, all that kind of stuff. And so what the idea that the uh, UK wasn't big enough for the expensive product, uh, like, was that, a, was that a fact? Um, I mean, Well, it's a... no, because the product was twice as expensive as the domestic production. Right. Uh, so uh, they were built under licence in uh, just outside Amsterdam, in Amstelveen, and uh, they, they came in at twice the price of a CAF, or a Morden Short, or those sorts of brands. Um, uh, Bars and Wilkins was just starting at that time. Uh, and again, that that business, what an opportunity. I knew Jim Morden. Um, uh, uh, I, I knew uh, Mr. Chapman, who was the head of Quad. Uh, Harold Leake of Leake Amplifiers. All those people were people who dropped into the shop. Right. And, and so I had an early exposure to some very seasoned people in audio. And then when it came to have to deal with the audiovisual business, it was it was an important part of uh, uh, of making my way quickly. And I, I moved into product management then in audiovisual. 
So I was thinking the the, the question because uh, I understand you came to Australia under the Bell and Howe flag. Yes. Um, so Australia certainly wouldn't be a bigger market than the UK to distribute B and H. So what was Bell and Howe's? What was the reason to move to Australia with it? Because you're a you're so a UK five, boy. You weren't an Australian boy. But five five years after joining Bell and Howe, they moved me to the United States as the first uh, European employee to go over there. That makes a, sense. As, yeah. Yeah, and and uh, so I then uh, my boss after about three months uh, quit, and I got his job. Um, you know, I earned five times as much in the U.S. as I had been earning just eighteen months ahead uh, earlier in England. Right. And um, uh, after three years, we had just a terrible winter, yeah. and my wife said, "Look, I, I'm going to leave and go back to Europe uh, with our baby. If you want to come, that's great." Um, and I said, well, what if I found somewhere warmer? Because uh, Mary Lisa is from uh, Mauritius. And uh, a week later, the Australian general manager came in and said, I'm, I'm not allowed to talk to you, but uh, would you come and work for us in Australia? Um, and I said, oh, yes. <laughs> so, G'day, mate. <laughs> yes. Definitely. It was on. That was on. So you got to Australia with under Bell and Howe's ba banner. Uh, you then, I don't know how long, how long were you in, at working for Bell and Howe in Australia before you, you made your next change? Three years. Um, very early on in that time, uh, my um, boss, in ultimate boss in the United States, who had been my boss in Europe, he followed me into the US about 12 months after I moved there and became executive VP. And, and he said, look, we're going to have to shut down the Australian business. It's uh, the consumer photo business, which distributed Ricoh cameras, Nikon cameras, Shinon movie cameras, Bell and & Howell, uh, and several other fine brands. And uh, I said, oh, look, it's the only profitable business you've got down here. All the rest of it doesn't actually make money. Mm. Really? But because of that earlier track record, he actually listened and mm. he said, actually, you're right. Um, well, you've got two years to find a solution for getting us out of the consumer business and, and finding someone else to uh, turn Bell & Howell Australia into a distribution business. And so, you know, one thing and another, I did that. I worked with my boss in Australia and um, he later went on to be the chairman of Hanamex and, and, and Bill, Bill Cutbush. So Hanamex was Fuji at that stage. They bought in Fuji early doors. Yes, that was uh, handled by a separate division of Hanamex, right, right. Um, photo distributors, I think they were. Um, and um, uh, anyway, we, we, uh, we found some investors and uh, I and the other investors uh, set up a subsidiary to buy the consumer photo business. Okay, so, so you bought from Bell and & and that's where you formed Maxwell, was it? Uh, yes. Well, the Maxwell had been a brand that had been formed as a division of Bell & Howell Australia, and we couldn't buy the company yep. because you don't buy companies where you don't want the liabilities. Um, so we formed a new company but kept a similar name. So yeah. Maxwell Photo Optics became Maxwell Optical Industries. Okay. Okay. So, Maxwell, what were your predominant brands you were then bringing Nick into Australia? Nikon became the major brand. Rico went their own way and formed their own company in Australia, uh, and Nikon appointed uh, us as the distributor. And uh, it was a little business doing a couple of million dollars a year. And um, initially, for the first year, I didn't even have a contract. Uh, in those days, you just shook hands. Uh, the managing director 
uh, of uh, Nikon in Japan uh, looked at me. He said, Swenston uh, san, you will do your best. And that was the agreement. We shook hands. Wow. And it was, of course, a far stronger contract than anything in writing because it was one of trust with a young guy who really didn't know much about running a business. Um, when I look back on it, I knew nothing, actually. Uh, but I had some very good outside directors who knew lots about running business and gave lots of good advice. So uh, can you get, get a time frame? When was this? When did you this bring on? 1983. 83. Okay. Right. So the Nikon range, we were in the sort of, uh, would, would it be the F3 series of? Yep. We launched the F3 in, in 1980, uh, 1982, actually. Um, and in 83, the F3 um, high eye Yes. And the Nikon EM, which was the first popular yeah. um, electromechanical Nikon um, that sold for two ninety nine, uh, so, including yeah. a fifty mil lens. Yeah, the the F three was the uh, press photographer's dream. It was the um, the bulletproof, uh, course film thirty five millimeter film camera, motor yeah. drive, just the one you see uh, in any kind of war movie set in. In that in that period, you would they would be running around with one of those. Well, yes, it succeeded. Uh, arguably, the most distinctive camera of all time, the F two, uh, which was the one that uh, was used in the Vietnam War. Yes. Um, and this was um, the first electromechanical camera, as opposed to all mechanical camera. Um, the the metering was uh, much more sophisticated and. Um, uh, it gave a lot of people access because its auto exposure system was good. But I think one would have to say that, that if you just go back a few years, the, the most significant camera probably um, in that era was the Canon AE-1. Mm -hmm. um, and that was 1967. And that, that was a camera that was so advanced that the rest of the Japanese industry was really uh, very frightened because it had 30% less parts than anyone else. It, it was the first camera to use electronics properly. And um, uh, they changed their lens mount um, and and did some remarkable things. So I think one's got to give credit that, that, that yeah. Canon certainly did a, a fantastic job there. Um, and Nikon played initially catch up and then did some pretty good things too. Yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting time of development because that swap, swap over from pure mechanical to electromechanical, it made like the repair centers suddenly had a lot more to deal with. Uh, the type of technicians that were being used, they needed to bring someone else in. Uh, yes. Yeah, and photographers themselves, they got a great benefit from from the electronic componentry. And of course, now we're in a whole different world of where that sits. But back then, there were there was a real challenge around there to adopt it. But they were selling like like hotcakes, I'd imagine. It was a extremely popular thing. Yes, it was a big transition. It was the end of the era for medium format cameras. I think in in press magazines still used medium format for double page spreads yep. uh, and the advertising industry. But uh, by and large, all press photography moved to thirty five by the early eighties, and and the FM two, uh, which was uh, that year, uh, and um, the F three were really significant cameras in that regard. Yeah, the the FM two is is still loved and collected there. One of them, and and well flogged actually. It's it's popular. really the only uh, historic camera that I've kept. I kept one really? in a box that has never never really been used. Yeah. Uh, I get it out once a year and just put a few 
uh, clicks on the uh, film advance so that the shutter blinds don't uh, seize up. But um, apart from that, it's 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 probably only had about uh, three rolls of film through it. Oh wow! So 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 tell me about the the va- the cost of a let's say an F three, which was the professional grade thirty five millimeter film that you might find wedding photographers dabbling with back then. Uh, I mean, 35 mil, there was people like... Uh, well, uh, wedding photographers still in the early 80s were using medium format. Yes. Uh, the most popular uh, was either Hasselblad um, or Bronica. Uh, Bronica had a special uh, shutter, a focal plane shutter, that enabled you to get flash sync at 500th of a second. And a and, 645 format, so you got more shots per roll. Well, not all of them. They did have a 645, but uh, they also had, uh, you know, larger format too, 67. Um, so 645 came in the mid-1980s. Yes. Uh, Mid-1970s, sorry, uh, 1974. Um, Bell & Howell was the um, uh, uh, distributor for um, Mumia in, in, in the 70s and, and launched itself. Um, uh, Bell & Howell Mumia Company, it was called joint venture with the Osawa company in Japan, uh, which owned the brand. And uh, they launched it in, in 1974. And I remember being over there in that summer and it, it literally changed photography, it gave access, lightweight. Um, mm. Women started using medium format cameras for the first time um, because it was light enough. Um, and I, I think in some ways that was uh, a really significant camera getting women into uh, prominence in in uh, professional photography, which of course it's 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 seventy eighty percent now. I mean, I don't really know the numbers, but the dominance of uh, predominance of women in professional photography is it's it's stunning, isn't it? It's it, it is, and it's wonderful because um, it it it. I think a lot of the the macho ness of of an era gone by has has passed. I think there's a more reflective element in in photography today. Uh, but we're probably jumping ahead of ourselves on, yeah, on our yeah. discussion. But no, but no, it, I, I, it's a wonderful thing that that's happened. Yeah, I'm just curious about the investment, like uh, what a photographer would be spending on equipment then, like a an F3 compared to. I mean, it's a very hard thing to ascertain. We well, we look at it, M was two ninety nine, and my recollection, now I could be wrong, it was about eight hundred dollars, I think, to buy an F3 body, something of that order. So would that um, be uh, four weeks' wages? Or, uh, well, I'm trying to think what I was earning then. Um, uh, it would, it would, it would be well, well over a month's wages at the right, time. Right. Yeah. yeah. So, so it's not, it's quite comparable to, to what's being paid now for, you know, the latest F series Nikon Digital. It's, it's a comparative thing. It had, it, they haven't got stellarly cheaper or dearer in the process, have they? No, well, they've got they have got less expensive to deliver more, um, right. in the sense that you've got a camera now that that'll go at fourteen frames per second, um, you know, or in the mirrorless cameras uh, even higher. Uh, you had to pay a lot of money for a, a high speed motor drive and a and a body that would do it. Mm. Um, so you know they had the F three high eye point, which you could put a high speed motor in get uh, five and a half frames per second. We thought that was fantastic in those days. Um, the Nikon FM2 would do 3.2 frames per second, which for most photographers was okay because that was a $500 investment, 150 for the MD12 motor drive, and off you went. 
and you and, were a press photographer. And 10 seconds later, you had to change the role of film. <laughs> you yeah, know, yes. Well, yeah, actually, I'll tell you a little anecdote. Uh, my first visit to uh, the Melbourne Herald building, uh, which in those days was um, uh, down on Flinders Street in Melbourne, uh, that big um, sort of uh, 19th century building, um, they uh, had a photographic manager, a guy called Lester Howard, wonderful guy. Yeah. And I went into his office and he had uh, a bulk loader. Uh, now, for people that don't know about film, bulk loaders meant that you could buy a large roll of film and cut it up into little pieces in a black muslin bag and uh, get your film more cheaply than if you bought it in a 35mm can. And uh, he would cut these into rolls of 13 frames. Mm -hmm. And uh, one frame for the leader to wind it on and 12 to take pictures and all the cameras would go back into the uh, office into the cupboard at night photographers would not take them home they'd come into the office 7 30 uh, the photo brief would be at eight o'clock in the morning and he would say to them right you've got three jobs be back by midday three jobs here's your camera no motor drive and you did four frames per job <laughs> That's incredible, isn't it? But look at the work that was done. Uh, we yeah. published a book called Their Best Shots about 25 years ago, which was the first 25 years of the Nikon Press Awards. And uh, you look at the work that was done by those people and you just have to stand in awe that yeah. those were the conditions they worked in and yet they produced pure magic. Yeah, I think there's something about the constraint uh, I have asked a lot of photographers the question because I was heavily involved in the industry through the transition from film to digital. And a lot felt that, you know, even if you're shooting uh, five by four inch as a press photographer, where you would get a septograph six shots uh, in your camera and that you'd cover the football with six pictures. And, and of course, with five by four, there's a lot of cropping that can be done and there's real yes. advantage. And of course, into medium format, which would give you uh, 10 or 12 or 15 shots, depending on the format. We're kind of, they're kind of echoing that. But it, a lot of digital photographers that I've spoken to who did the transition, a lot of them shot more with digital and were okay and were happy with it. They didn't find it was a bad thing. They just said, oh, I've just got more choices now and my pictures are better. And, uh, but I think there is something about that training with, with restriction and restraint. And I don't know if you speak to any artist, the thing they fear the most is a blank canvas. What they want is... Uh, a direction they want guidelines they want boundaries they want and I, I think I think that really does produce some very interesting work and 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 certainly in the days of uh of press photography learning to wait and watch your subjects and know get a feeling for human nature and what's going to happen next I think it'll be an excellent tool uh using I, I, the, those uh, you use the term what, what's going to happen next um the late David Moore, great Australian photographer, uh, worked internationally, actually post-war, our first photo journalist who worked internationally after, after the Second World War. He went to London uh, for the coronation uh, and worked for the Observer. And uh, I got to know him quite well. He was a Nikon customer. He had a Nikon FE, and I kept on trying to persuade him to get an FE2. He said, look, you know, you just give me a new shutter and the camera's fine. Um, I don't need a new camera. And that was the economy of the man. Uh, but he said, there are two things 
uh, that uh, I think you, you need to know. Um, and one of them I heard back from New Zealand photographer Mike Langford later on. But the two things he said were this. What's going on here, number one, and then what's going to happen next? And those two uh, things as a guidance, I think, are really very important for all photography because they focus the mind. They focus the eyes. You look more actively. You see what is happening. And then you observe the mechanics of how people are moving or action is taking place out of the corner of your eye. And the frame begins to emerge in your mind and you position your legs to frame it correctly. All of those things happen after a while intuitively, I think, but they are the two absolute essentials if you're going to document things. Yeah. Uh, and, and learning to move your feet, probably the most important thing. So every year I go out, uh, and I've done this for years, uh, with a 50mm lens or a 35mm lens, no zoom, nothing else, and a camera, obviously. Um, and I just walk the streets with a fixed focal length lens as a discipline mm -hmm. and, and make sure that as I walk around, uh, I'm using my feet to actually help me frame the picture and not be lazy and just stand in one spot and zoom four times and take four different, basically different zooms of the same shot. Yeah. Because uh, that's not what photography is about. It's it's about seeing something and then positioning yourself to say something special and make make a unique moment happen. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I think it's a it's a lovely challenge, and I think there's a lot of people that still hold on to their film equipment for that that reason. They, uh, they like the feeling of that separation from the result and that separation. And I suppose it's, it's a little bit of a, an adrenaline rush for some of them too. I know the wedding photographers that are still shooting film at weddings, they would require some serious adrenaline at times to when you leave the wedding to feel like it's all captured, it's all there, it's, it's in, my, in my bag of film and I'm now going to give it to the lab and the lab are going to do whatever they want with it. Um, it makes me nervous that stuff, but I think it's it does keep it's a certain sort of person that enjoys that aspect. But certainly the fine tuning of your skills, it's a great tool. I I, I think when I shot my first wedding, which is uh, far too many years ago, um, I I did it for a friend, as most of us probably do, the first one, and I was quite terrified. They said, "Oh, we'd like about a hundred pictures." I thought, "My goodness, that's 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 um that's four rolls of film, golly." Um, I wonder if I can come up with a hundred different images for, for a whole wedding, golly. Um, and, and sure enough, I used about seven rolls of film and wished I'd had more, but I didn't. And I, what did I shoot it on? I think I, uh, it was probably by that, it was probably Tri-X, I think I used, uh, Kodak Tri-X, uh, at 400, 400 ISO. Mm -hmm. And, uh, it wasn't quite so old that it was still called 400 ASA, but uh, uh, 400 ISO. American film. Standards Association, yes. So, or the International Standards yeah. Association. A lot of people don't know that it actually does stand for something. <laughs> it does, it does, it does. And when it translates to digital, it's really interesting because it doesn't line up. Digital no. sensors work differently than film uh, light metering and film design. Uh, yes, it's really challenging. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, you're, you're very expert in all that stuff because you've had to deal with, you know, colour and all those things in your lab world. But uh, certainly um, the, the adrenaline of uh, shooting a wedding in film days was significant. 
Yeah. Although I must recount one when I, I, I did one of my first paid jobs as a wedding. And I it was at a famous um, uh, Sydney uh, boarding school um, uh, where, uh, you know, the, the, the bridegroom had gone to school and we were sitting there. But there was a fairly senior priest uh, who staggered in and uh, liked to stay in the same spot because moving was probably not his favorite thing. He's well into his 80s. And I remember I, I was shooting with a D1X, a Nikon D1X, uh, which was a, a second generation um, 5.4 megapixel camera, no less. Uh, and uh, the, 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 I was out changing the CF card, the, uh, you know, the compact flash card in the back. And I suddenly heard words that I knew were two pages later than the previous words. And he had gone over the vows. He'd literally passed right over the page and and moved and wasn't aware that he'd done so. And there are moments in your life that come before you. And I came out of the vestry on the side, wielding my camera and said, uh, Vicar, I think you might want to turn back for the vows. And the whole of the congregation <laughs> burst into applause because obviously they'd all spotted it but weren't game to tell him. And yeah. Bride and groom was so terrified, yeah. and uh, saved the day by just um, listening acutely and being brave. Uh, and I think that's the job of all wedding photographers. There are moments that you've got to take control. That's uh, right, and that's what a big professional is. It's understanding this and being yeah. ready for things and stepping into the breach when you have to. Yes, yeah, so I, th I, I think if you don't know how to pin a dress, if you don't know how to <laughs> fix hair. And all those things, male or not, you know, yeah, you, you, yeah. you're really not going to make it as a. You have to be a, a, everything. You have to be a counselor. You have to deal with the tears. You have yeah. to deal with the slightly interventionist mother-in-law. All those kind of things. <laughs> Beautifully um, said. And so diplomatic. Uncle George, who hasn't spoken to Esmelda for for thirty years, and I'm only here and. You know, and get the groomsmen involved in that to to, to avoid the the internecine war that occurs. Oh gosh, gosh! So tell me, um, you, you, it comes naturally to you putting yourself in front of people, and a lot of, I mean, one of the rises we've seen in the in the world is the awareness of people's comfort in front of other people, mm -hmm. and you know, you've 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 had a role in sales, and obviously that's been a, a great help to you. Uh, a lot of people do struggle with stopping people in the street. Uh, and, you know, the idea of a street photographer, yes, you're, you're not involving yourself, but there are times, particularly with events and when you're, you know, you do a lot of, uh, like, um, not, not professionally, but sorting events out for people and helping photograph them because you're the only person there with a camera, funny enough, in a whole room industry full of people. You're the person with a camera. You're probably the head of the association, but you're there in front of people. Do you have anything you would say to people about that? Is that something we just got to get over? Uh, and just look, it's it's funny. You, you I, I, I have two roles. When I'm out on the street, I find it immensely difficult to confront a person and say, "Look, you know, would you mind if I take your photograph?" Uh, or or stalk them and do it sort of um, furtively. I, I find that extremely hard. I think that's probably why I like architecture as a subject so much because they don't answer back and they don't have views. <laughs> but when you're there in an industry function or you're at an event, uh, 
people are much more comfortable that you'll take command because they want to be part of the story. And so it, it's it, there's a different intent. And I think so much about photography is about intent. Uh, that's certainly how stories can be misread by the viewer if the intent and the execution differ. So you can place people on strange backgrounds and come up with either funny or seriously misleading pictures, mm. and people have to trust you that you're not going to do that. Mm. So I, I don't think there's any easy answer. You have to be confident that you know that certain placement is going to give your subject a, a beneficial look, and you have to persuade them in really quite – um, direct ways sometimes that you know we really need to turn you 90 degrees otherwise you know your chin's going to look terrible but you can't say that mm. uh, so you just say, oh the light's so much better here okay. you don't say why you, you you make them feel comfortable that you're you're lighting it better or that you're positioning them oh isn't that a lovely background uh, yes. to take the pole away from their from the middle of their head and those kind of things. Yes. So so all of those are observing and then the dynamics of relationship when people are talking to each other and you break in and say could we just have a quick shot here that that does take a little bit and you have to be sensitive to the fact that some conversations are very, very earnest and deeply personal and you just don't go there. Uh, it's a very very rude photographer who interrupts mm. uh, when the moment's not right. Do you steal yourself in that situation or you're naturally in that role now? You just click into the role of being the, the person. I'm much more comfortable than I was 25 years ago I uh, when I first started doing that about, uh, gosh, in the, in the mid eighties, I, I felt quite uncomfortable and I would do remote shots. I'd look at the, the person I wouldn't engage. And so as I look at some of the early C41 negatives that, that I shot of events, they're very poor shots. They didn't engage the subjects. They were viewing. They weren't participation. Yeah, it's interesting. There's a lot of, uh, there's always been debate about photographers that uh, are photojournalists and observe and stand back. And I hear it discussed, we mentioned weddings at I hear it discussed around weddings where I don't want a wedding that's posed and most photographers know that they need to do a certain amount of that pose management to get the sort of shots people expect to look unposed. Uh, yes. It is a challenge and I think it's a skill that you pick up by doing lots of that sort of work, isn't it? Well, I, certainly, I mean, I, I wouldn't regard myself as a great wedding photographer. I've done enough that I'm comfortable in the situation, but, but certainly that's not my greatest strength as a photographer. Uh, but, and, and don't, misunderstand me i chase the children because the greatest pictures are children being children yeah yeah and when there are a whole bunch of cousins who get together and they don't meet very often they have absolutely fascinating interactions and so i find myself sitting on the floor looking slightly up at seven-year-olds chatting over the cheese board and they're, they're furtive and they look to see if the adults are watching them as they go, you know, they just yeah, get yeah. their hands up and they just go. And if you stand near some fruit jellies or some dessert plates, you'll get gems. <laughs> but you've just got to be very patient. 
Yeah, yeah, of course, of course, of course. Now, look, I'm going to pivot back to the um, the Maxwell conversation we were having. Uh, you would have seen the interna- internationalization of the industry uh, where we could always, I mean, most photographers, they would have taken, well, not most, a lot would have taken a holiday, Southeast Asia, bought some equipment as part of the holiday and bought it back in duty-free. Uh, with online buying and selling and that sort of stuff, we've had a, a massive change to the way the world works. And and if anything, what I've seen is this the idea of a middle person or a distributor, you know, it's really struggling and, and evaporating. Is that what, was that a real challenge for you? Was that what drove you into professional associations? Was that something that came about trying to get the industry around sorting these sort, sorts of issues out? Let me backtrack to the to the US. I was a, a member of the committee of the National Audiovisual Association when I moved to the US. I, I was just asked to represent Bell and Howell in that. And I, I very quickly learned that you could gain an awful lot more for your business's insight by working with people who were actual competitors on things that were of group interest. And so all associations essentially are about doing together what you can do less well by yourself. And the, 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 in the photo industry, we were fortunate uh, in photo retailing that there was an organization called the Photo Marketing Association, which was essentially a North American association. Uh, and early in the uh, 1980s, uh, we um, were fortunate to have their interest in setting up something here in Australia. Um, and that was done by a, a number of retailers. Alan Michael from Michaels in Melbourne was a very uh, significant player in that, Paul Curtis in the, in the early days. And uh, so by the late 1980s, pro rata, Australia had more members of PMA than the United States. Really? Uh, Yes. Uh, uh, well, we ended up with uh, 1,500 mini labs. And in the early 80s, Australia was the fastest adopting country. New Zealand actually got ahead of us on a wow. pro rata basis. But Australia and New Zealand particularly became the two strong international parts of the Photo Marketing Association, which became PMAI, uh, Photo Marketing Association International. And started chapters in Canada and the United Kingdom and in Germany. And from my perspective, the chance to meet some of these great retailers and then the distributors in those countries, I then had a network of Nikon distributors and Nikon subsidiaries around the world that I would refer to. And they became good friends. I learned a lot from them. Uh, They were interested in some of the things we did as an independent distributor. As a distributor, I always said that our role was to act as if we were the manufacturer. What would the manufacturer do here? Mm. The industry when I joined it in Australia was, let's see how much we can rip out of the manufacturer so we can make a margin, which came from the days of fixed retail pricing. And, you know, people made uh, absolutely ridiculous margins in those days in distribution and limited supply. Mm. Uh, I didn't believe in that. I thought the more people that own cameras, the better the industry would be. And so we had quite modest margins and we worked very closely. And uh, I think our great success was that as a distributor, we behaved like a manufacturer. 
And uh, but I worked with lots and lots of other uh, distributors, as as you and your family did in the retail business and the lab business. And as a result, uh, you know, we're still involved in this industry and and surviving where a lot of people that didn't participate in those industry associations and keep giving to get something, uh, you know, that, that it, it was very important. And I still have relationships in Germany, for example, that are incredibly important. And I remember, uh, you know, someone who is now the technical director of uh, Germany's largest distribution retail business, uh, Martin Wagner. Yes. Uh, you know, uh, as as his first PMA. Yes. Uh, and, and you know, here he is now an industry leader around the world. And uh, we've exchanged friendships for 30 years. Yeah, I've I got a lot out of the PMA for that that same reason. I found it to be to be excellent. You, you made a, a comment about act as if you were the manufacturer. Um, did you find the manufacturers were? I mean, it's fine to to do that, but when you have ideas that you want to push back up the chain and to the manufacturer saying, "Hey, my this is my market," because film and film cameras were mostly designed in the northern hemisphere. And film emulsions, and I'm speaking from a lab perspective, we always struggled because film emulsions were designed for a lot flatter light than yes. we have here. And, and digital yes, sensors I mean, are. Europe, well. example, or England particularly, is about two stops lower in exposure brightness and, and the contrast, contrast way yeah. higher here than it is yeah. there. Uh, of course, that's actually currently different because there are no planes flying over Europe. So right. um, the, 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 the light... Uh, component is very different in Europe. Really, is it? We're seeing at the moment, you haven't seen in 50 years. Right. right. Uh, so, uh, uh, yes, that was that was an interesting aspect. In 1989, we decided to form something called Nikon Club Australia, mm-hmm. and there was a um, uh, an affiliation in the United States uh, where they had sort of got a magazine, and we said, well, we, we'd like to get people together pros and amateurs together, uh, and all those people in businesses who were Mr. or Ms. photography in their companies, they were the go-to person that uh, the managing director would call on, uh, you know, to get the picture of the shaking hands and the gold watch and that kind of stuff for the company magazine. And we found this huge group of people that were really keen to learn. And we formed a magazine uh, called Nikon Light Reading in Australia uh, in uh, 87 or 88. Uh, and uh, by 1989, uh, I'd have subsidiary people from all over the world coming to us and saying, this is this is an extraordinary. That, w- what do you call it? And I said, well, um, we call it loyalty marketing. Uh, and, and, and that was completely new in those days. And so we were able to actually give some things back. And as a result, uh, when times were difficult, we got incredible support. Yeah. And so we survived as a distributor when most others didn't uh, because there was a level of interaction and trust between the brands. And uh, that lasted many, many years. Yeah. I, I, I asked the question because I rec- recall one of the last PMAs we had, I hosted a session with camera manufacturers, well, distributor representatives in Australia. And all the, 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 the usual suspects were there on the panel. And I asked them, your cameras all have Wi-Fi now, so they're very early with the Wi-Fi yes. adoption. Would, why does your camera time settings not sync with Wi-Fi time servers so that everywhere you travel in the world, 
your camera's date and time would be correct, which I actually think may be one of the reasons why mobile phone photography has been, you know, such a fabulous thing is mm. because of this additional information that the sensors, the image holds. It has this metadata that metadata, makes the pictures yeah. infinitely. Anyway, I, I asked the question of the representatives and there was a resounding, why would you want that? Um, and so well, that response, I, I think you know, part of that was, uh, you know, we were struggling. Uh, I remember we, we launched a camera with, with built-in Wi-Fi about um, 2005. And it required you to be a uh, IT oh, technician. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, it's still, and it make, still is rough. It's still not easy. It, and and so I, I have a camera today that I sometimes manage to get to work on Wi-Fi and sometimes not. Other brands seem to do it a bit better, perhaps, uh, I, I think, in my opinion, than Nikon. I, I haven't seen one I'm happy with uh, yeah, but, but compared, compared to the... With, compared with phones? Absolutely yeah. not. Yeah. Uh, a feature like sweep panorama that Nick, that um, uh, you know Apple introduced. Yeah, that, that is technically possible in a camera. Why don't we have it in real cameras? Mm. There are times I use my iPhone and I've only got a seven plus because it still works fine and it's got a twelve megapixel camera and it's a very good camera. Uh, I can create a seventy megabyte file <laughs> with a sweep panorama and print it out as a two meter print having processed it through Photoshop and the raw mode. And I can take a better picture with that than I can with five frames, uh, chop them together and uh, try and align the, the diffraction effects yeah. and all the rest of that. It, it, it just does surprise me that yeah. it may be a patent issue, but nonetheless, it's frustrating that I still have to use my phone camera for some particular pictures. Yeah, I, I feel that perhaps there's... Um there is a, a strata there where the camera designers, I'm sure there's people that want to do these things within the companies, but it seems to be, and maybe it's patent tied up, but there seems to be this reticence to do that. I mean, imagine a, a DSLR with a dock for your phone on the back and your phone could have a software that could run your Nikon DSLR uh, and then share it straight with the cloud or whatever you want to do as a part. Of, I mean, those sorts of things, we say it and we just go, blah, we, why didn't you do this? And of course next to impossible, really, to get things done. But the manufacturers, they've taken a long time to respond to things. And I was just curious about your days as a distributor, whether you found the factory responsive and, and all that kind of thing. Well, we had a number of features that they picked up. I remember uh, in the early days of 35mm compacts, uh, we had a wonderful little camera launched in A3 called the Nikon L35AF. Yeah. But if you got the – obviously, the flash had a range of about three metres. So you would be standing quite close to your subject, not an ideal. So it was 38 millimeter lens, I think, yeah. uh, and and it, and it wasn't an ideal aspect ratio for uh, uh, pleasant portraits. Mm. Uh, and if you got a little too close, then there was this huge hotspot, a bit like the one on the top of your forehead. Yeah, that's, that's one here. And, that hasn't and, changed. That hasn't changed. <laughs> and uh, I said to them, look. You know, couldn't you put a little electromechanical uh, um, uh, diffuser that would pop up when the autofocus said that it was less than three meters? Oh. And sure enough, 12 months later, up came a camera with exactly what I had described. Wow. Swenson-san, please study closely flash system close up. You will recognize yeah, yeah. And I looked at it. I said, you know, me? 
yeah. idea. Well done. Yes. Well so done, John. Was, but it was very expensive to make, and uh, I think the accountants got at it, and the next generation it disappeared again. But it really <laughs> worked. It was wonderful. Yeah, I thought that's. I mean, you see uh, with your Mets flashes and that those sorts of features are uh, uh, a common thing, and I think it's 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 good sense to have things like that in it. Uh, um, it's an interesting effect, and I see some photographers using. Uh, the film photographers using point and shoots on the dance floor, and they really actually like that effect. Wide angle, hot spot flash, rapid fall off. It's got a, a nostalgic feel to the the dodgy little thirty five mm instamatics we used to have. Yes, uh, it, it no, does. I, th I think there is a lot to be said for uh, un unobtrusive photography. Yes, uh, when you're doing dance floor stuff, uh, I tend to put the lightest camera, put a wide angle lens, twenty mm lens. And I don't really care about the technical quality because I want to capture the mood and the feel and the movement. I'll put a slower shutter speed on so that everyone's slightly blurred and follow focus and try and get, you know, something out of it. Sometimes with flash, sometimes with very high speed and no flash. Yes. Uh, so, you know, I'll vary it, but it's it's usually a consistent look. Yes, yes. So, look, let's just pivot uh, again because I like annoying everybody. Um you mentioned architecture as uh, a passion of yours. Yes. And I've been watching over the last three years, perhaps, or maybe longer, that you've been working on a series of cathedrals. And uh, mm. they are incredible pictures. And I, what's, what's driving you behind that? Uh, is this, like, you, you've, you, you're not, uh, you're semi-retired, are you? You're uh, yes, I suppose one would have to say I'm semi-retired because I sit at a desk writing now uh, to go with the pictures I make. Uh, but, uh, you know, I'm, I'm up for a job anytime anyone's uh, looking for a photographer, believe me. Well, uh, or a man um, in radio or a voice for radio or, you know. Well, yes, I, if, once I settle down, I'll actually go into community radio because I think that's, that's important. But, you know, I, I did a radio program on photography on Sydney's Radio 2GB right, for 15 yes. years. And uh, uh, people said to me, how can you talk about photography on radio? And in those days, people wanted to know, you know, I've got a Canon A1 and, you know, it doesn't do this. And I always believed as a distributor that I should know all my competitors' cameras as well as I knew my own so that I'd know uh, what the good things about ours were. And perhaps not to mention some of the less good things about ours that I realized someone else did better. Uh, and as a result, you know, I, I, it worked fairly well. I didn't need questions on notice. I was able to take them, and 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 we had a ninety-minute program once a month wow. on um, Australia overnight with the great late um, Owen Delaney, yes. and we had half a million people listening. It was wonderful. Wow! wow. And um, I, you know, I think the uh, the 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 great thing about uh, talking to people about uh, photography on radio was what I learned. Very early in my life, uh, we didn't have television uh, in our home uh, until I was into my teens. Uh, my, my parents just chose not to have it. It, it was available, but we, we didn't have it. And so I listened to what we used to call the wireless, <laughs> yeah. and uh, um, which was funny because, of course, to listen to the wireless, you had you to plug it in. <laughs> <laughs> so... The, the, the good thing about it was that uh, uh, they had lots of uh, radio drama and you would hear the great actors perform the great plays and the picture of the mind was created. And I just worked on that 
I can create any picture in the listener's uh, uh, eyes or mind by describing it uh, appropriately and remember that I'm only ever talking to one person uh, because you only have two sets of ears listening to the radio um, or one set of ears, two of them. Yeah. But um, the, the, the importance of seeing in the mind the picture is also an important part of creating a picture in, in reality. So I didn't have any difficulty talking about photography. And one of the bits of feedback we got from our listeners was, you know, I, I was there. You know, you were describing something and I really felt I was there. And, and, and that's, that's important. Uh, so so, so let's, let's try this out. Tell me, uh, describe a cathedral picture. Uh, because we, most people listen to this, uh, listen to this. There's a few people that download, uh, well, sorry, what's the Vimeo or what's the YouTube version of it. And we will put this image up. So I'm putting on the spot here. We didn't plan this at all. But yeah. describe, describe your cathedral photography or pick a cathedral that you've chosen to photograph and, and help, help us with our mind's eye. So um, uh, take yourself to a city that's built of buildings uh, in the 15th and 14th century. Uh, it's the city of Oxford, a great Oxford University town and many um, fine old chapels. And uh, the um, cathedral in Oxford is actually Christchurch, uh, the College of Christchurch. And it is the smallest cathedral in, in Britain. Uh, and and it, it, um, it there's no, in England, actually, there's a smaller one in Wales, but it is the smallest cathedral in England. And uh, on that particular day, I arrived uh, by appointment at 10 o'clock and I was told that I had until 1 p.m. to do the photograph. I'd not been in there uh, for probably f nearly 50 years when I was a student at Oxford. And uh, I went in and suddenly the verger came up and said, Mr. Swainson, I'm terribly sorry. There's been a terrible mistake. Uh, you are here on the first day of the university term and there is a special service at 11. Um, I said, right, well, there's three hours of work here. I have 55 minutes. I will go to work. And uh, I had to immediately sum up in my mind what the perspectives were and what was special about this relatively small building. And the the beautiful uh, ceiling was clearly part of it. The 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 design was exceptional, and so I positioned myself in the exact centre of the nave, and then worked backwards and forwards up and down the nave with long views uh, from both perspectives. Uh, quickly shot some of the stained glass, and all the time try, trying to absorb what was special about this place. And all, all the time there were people getting ready for this 11 o'clock service. And then the Bishop of Oxford came up to me and said, ah, I hear you're photographing our cathedral. I hope you're enjoying it. And I'm trying to work and adjust the line and, and I'm down on my knees and he's looking down. Oh, I see you use a wide angle lens. Now on my Olympus, I, and I'm thinking, I <laughs> just bumped into a photo enthusiast and I'm trying to get a job of work done. 
uh, and he said, oh, my dear boy, you're obviously very busy. And now no one's called me dear boy for Wonderful. at least 40 years. So we'll take that. Yes. Uh, uh, it was it was a delightful uh, reminder of uh, the university environment. But what I sensed was the wonderful light that came in from the windows. Uh, it was 10 o'clock in the morning, so there was an asymmetry. One wall was illuminated, one was not. I thought very quickly, I've got to bracket this heavily so that I can merge the two pictures later on. And I'm trying to get the shape and the color. And because they used sodium lighting, I was trying to get the color of the stone clear in my mind because I hadn't had enough time to use a grayscale uh, test shot. I just had to go straight and shoot. And I was studying the stone as carefully as I could so that in post-production I could get rid of the orange cast mm -hmm. uh, and restore it to the correct color before I then processed it into a monochrome image. Mm -hmm. And what I realized very quickly was that the, the, there was a resonance between the uh, marble floor in diamond shapes uh, of beautiful patterns uh, with the crisscross of the uh, tracery in the, in the ceiling. And if I could get them in the same frame, then I would have a beautiful uh, symmetry of asymmetrical shapes. And sure enough, managed to get that picture. Uh, and uh, trying to keep people out of the field of view as they were getting closer to 11 o'clock was quite a challenge. But it, it was a wonderful experience to work under pressure. Most of the time I didn't. And uh, in the end, I photographed 53 uh, buildings Wow. I've traveled, you know, uh, goodness, more than 10,000 miles in the UK, back and forth, uh, over five different visits. And uh, I've included several abbeys and chapels, not cathedrals, which have extraordinary uh, buildings. And I've called it uh, the, the book that I'm uh, going to publish quite soon, uh, I Will Lift Mine Eyes, which is the first words of Psalm 122. I will lift mine eyes unto the hills from whence cometh my help in the old English prayer book. Uh, and that was the psalm that we uh, would read and sing together at my uh, school, which was Winchester College, which was the first cathedral I got to know. Winchester Cathedral was next door to the school. I sang there. I was a chorister uh, and, and sang in, in large choirs, did the um, Bach, uh, St. John Passion, and other wonderful works. And uh, when I was listening uh, to sermons and my mind drifted off, um, I would look up to the ceilings. And then I, somewhere 50 years later, decided, gosh, it would, I realized no one had ever photographed them all. And no one has ever photographed all the cathedrals, ceilings in England before. So it's a, it, it's a first. Wow. There's lots of people who've done one or two, but, and some who've done 10, but no one's done them all. And so I have now. And what, how how will we be able to purchase that book when the time comes? Will it be? Well, uh, I'm hoping it, it will be available. Uh, initially, uh, I will launch it with a Kickstarter because I'm going to self-publish. Yeah. Um, uh, so the first 200 copies will be available by Kickstarter uh, that helps fund the printing. Um, the printing alone costs sort of nearly $50,000. Uh, to, to, to make the number, I, th I will make 2,000 copies of the book. Um, uh, and hopefully I'll find a distributor for that in England and in the United States as well. Oh, that's, that's fabulous. You'll be able to buy it initially on Kickstarter for a yep. higher price. 
um, but signed and numbered. Uh, and then the later version will probably be a $79 art book, 250 pages. Yeah, wonderful. And so tell me, with the, um, with the description you gave of the, the diamond pattern in the floor and an echo in the, the ceiling, um, does that suggest these are ultra-wides or were you doing some sort of a, a Hockney joiner style? No, all, all of them are single frames. Uh, the only thing I do in Photoshop is uh, just bring out the shadows because, uh, uh, you know, half the time I ask them to turn all the lights off because most cathedrals have downlights. And you yes. can't shoot upwards into downlights. You get too yes. much flare. Yes. Um, and some some were wonderfully cooperative. And and then you discover that some of the largest cathedrals have uh, complete uh, remote iPad uh, devices that control all the lighting. Oh. And you can be standing with the head verger in Liverpool Cathedral, which is the largest cathedral in England in terms of cubic volume. And he has an iPad controller. He says, now, these, are these the ones you want off? And, wow. and then there are others where, well, Bert isn't in today, so we don't know how to turn the lights off. You'll have to come back. <laughs> uh, so, so, so there's the whole range. Oh, that's incredible. Um, so that project, how long has it taken you to capture these? I started that in 2016. Okay, so my uh, guess was about before. right, yeah. To just before Photokina that year. Uh, yeah. I did the first four before Photokina and then the next three after Photokina uh, in Cologne, Germany. And, uh, of course, uh, I was inspired in the 30 years, I was 40 years I was going to Photokina every two years uh, by Cologne Cathedral, which I always tried to go into, um, which is a large and wonderful old building that's had stonemasons in it for, uh, all 700 years since it was first built. Wow. They've never stopped rebuilding it. Well, my daughter saw it um, over just before Christmas last year. She was there with her grandmother. They, they her um, Kate's mother is from Cologne, and um, uh, so Elizabeth went uh, to Europe and spent uh, some time there. And the cathedral was an absolute standout as a as an interesting sort of a Gothic something we're not quite used to seeing when we're looking at cathedrals. So I'm looking forward to seeing that. Yes. Oh, that's wonderful. So um. We're getting close to needing to close our time together. Um, following the professional associations, you joined the Australian Institute of Professional Photography and you were invited onto the board as treasurer and I was serving at that stage as well on the board. And we, we both went through some pretty terrible times as we, as we made the decision to uh, pivot the association from professional management to, to volunteer management. And... Gosh, that toll that must have taken on you because I know I know what it did to me, and mm. there's not a lot left uh, in me for associations after that. I think, in fact, I feel personally, I feel with the PMA because that also had to end, uh, and the AIPP, and I've had a lot of involvement with camera clubs. It to me, it's felt like I've been taking old friendly dogs to the vet and putting them down. You know, I've been a part of this awful process where these bigger associations, professionally run associations, just can't function these days. Um, did you get through it as unscathed as as I expect, John? Because you're a you're a you've seen a lot more than I have. You've oh you've been... look, I, I I think it takes its toll on all of us in different ways. Um, the the thing I would say is that I, I think the the AIPP, the Australian Institute of Professional Photography, actually in pivoting back to uh, a, a volunteer base. Grassroots, is, yes. It, it is actually 
restored its grassroots connection with photography. And uh, I notice in this uh, COVID-19 era, the launch of a new online uh, uh, contest. Isn't that uh, stellar? Isn't which that? is absolutely remarkable and, yeah. and a wonderful contribution from photographers for photographers. Yes. Uh, and, and I see in that a wonderful opportunity for photographers to stand back from the politics or pers perspectives that individuals uh, inevitably creatives are passionate people. Otherwise, you can't do it. Mm. Uh, so there are lots of views of how to do it and how not to do it and why someone is doing it wrong and et cetera, et cetera. But the reality is that we're all very vulnerable as photographers and the association uh, meets the criteria of doing those things together, which we cannot do just by ourselves. And to have the opportunity to have people who are not only trained in great photography, but in the evaluation process, assess your work and give you insights, it raises the game. And any association that serves the marketplace of consumers or commercial customers, where there are a set of disciplines of assessing a person's skill, lifting their skills, getting those pictures printed so they have durable value uh, for people, is an incredibly important thing. Uh, and uh, I'm really quite hopeful that when people stand back and say, how did I get through this as a working photographer when there was no income for three months or four months? Mm. Oh, I looked at my archive or I got my website going. And there were all these seminars that suddenly popped up where people told me how to do things I didn't know how to do myself. And they did them as part of my membership. And I didn't that, have that's what I'm most excited about. That. All of those things yeah. are happening right now. Yeah, yeah, and I think Australia is doing an outstanding job in that, and and I take my hat off to the board uh, right now for for doing those things and getting on with it. Uh, and as a result, it'll be a different industry on the other side, as most industries will. But the creatives will still have some of their ability to be passionate because they've got through it with the support of other photographers. Yeah, and and I think in some ways the the times we're in now, the uh, the, the pandemic. Uh, that has broken a lot of norms and made a lot of the edge cases which where drama can sometimes play out. It's just muted it. And what what we went through with the, the board and the association reverting to a grassroots association, it also had that effect of muting some of the drama and passion because the, the most important things came to the forefront. And well, if you listen, you'll begin to hear people. If you don't yes. listen... <laughs> um, people can shout as much as they like and you won't hear them. Yes. Uh, so so I, the great thing I've learned in life is listen more and speak less. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I actually read on Facebook this morning in a totally unrelated factor boating forum, they had muted the comments because of some debate over stitch and glue joining of boats. You know, it was just... And the, and the, the moderator of the forum, who I, I think very highly of, he said, there's more, there's more heat than light in this yes. equation. And I thought, yeah. I thought, oh my gosh, I've never heard it put that way. That's, that's it. Uh, but mm. I'm so excited about the education opportunities that the AOP are pumping out, the interviews, the, the training yes. sessions. I, f I found that the, the award stuff, I think it's important, but I find that it's very distracting for a lot of young photographers to think that's what they need to do. And I mm. think the, the professionalism that the association can impart on other members sharing the ideas of what it takes to be a professional is where the true value 
really lies. Well, and it's made me, for example, and you know, I'm now in my seventh decade. I, I, I am determined uh, before this is all over to have a decent website, not just a blog site. Uh, I've because I've got a blog site and I've reactivated that. I've started writing again for it. Uh, but get get a trading site together because I've got a book coming out on Sydney yes. under COVID-19 and yes. uh, I need to sell that. Therefore, I need a website that actually has a trading capability. I'm learning how to do that and people in the Institute are helping me do that. So from from my perspective, uh, the, the, the upside of this is that I will be a more professional photographer. Uh, I will serve customers better. I will get more income as a result of what I've learned from all of this uh, rather dark period. Uh, I've certainly shot one of the more important bodies of work that I've made in my life during this last 45 days. Uh, and uh, it certainly will have created some historical value, I think, for... Uh, yes, you're Sydney under lockdown. Um, Sydney in lockdown, is, is, it, was, it was certainly not work I enjoyed doing. Uh, yeah. Walking a deserted city was, was really quite um, halting. It's moving, know? isn't it? Um, it's very moving. Yeah. Uh, because a city without people has no purpose. Yes. Uh, and, and so they're just buildings and they, they cease to have meaning uh, in the context of human beings. But the, the, the record is important because yeah. in another two weeks, it'll be a different world again. I'm really hoping it's not the same world. Uh, I really hope we've learnt and we've changed and we've, we've grown and we've, you know, I, I'm worried about that aspect of it because this has been a massive opportunity for the world to, to look in the mirror um, and I'm, I'm very hopeful. I know a lot, enough will change that things will be better but, you know, humans are stubborn and we're loaded with hubris and, you know, we fall back into our old ways so easily. Um, mm. But... Anyhow, look, John. Thank you so much for your time. You're such a you're such a gentleman, and it's it's a great pleasure knowing you, and uh, seeing what you're producing, and seeing the fearlessness with which you you go forward with the work, and and the generosity with which you share it and share your time. Uh, the world's a better place for John Swainston. So thanks again for the hour today, John. Thank you very much, Paul. It's been a pleasure. Well, um, It's you two just rabbited on like a couple of old women. You actually cut one woman gossiping. Cut? Well, I ha I'm saying this ahead of time. Okay. Where I I envisage myself in the future cutting it exactly correctly. I will. I, I will. I will. Can help you do you an that. extra check because you. you guys gossip like we, like so two much, little teenage girls in a so <laughs> much we have seen under the hood of behind the curtain of mm. so many things in the industry that haven't been great and. Uh, you know, and that's what you get when you... Normally, after you say cut, you're like, well, thanks so much, boop doo that's it. But you two, whew, yeah. that was a good bit. We should have kept that bit no, in. Then no. everyone would cry. No. It would no, be no. bad. It was lovely speaking to John anyway. Yeah. So uh, if you want to reach out to John, he is totally open for uh, chats and he would love to hear from you. What oh, you I'd love to see a, a John and Cy combo. Yeah, how interesting would that be? Got to send this one to Sai, force him to listen to it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, they, they're actually similar fellows in many ways. Mm. They're, they're quiet and and um, and really generous people. 
So, what are we going to talk about next, my love? <laughs> is it a rose thing? We're we talking about rose. You have the transfer, the, 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 the transference. What is it? What do you call it? Where you change. Transparency? Cha- no, you fuckhead. The change subjects. You know, you trans something, whatever. Uh, you don't have that skill. Neither do I because I can't even say the word. But, you know, we, we, we need to do like a gentle. Segway. Segway. Not just the thing you throw yourself off a cliff with. Oh shit! Sorry, I'm Segway. fidgeting again. No, no, it's um, okay. Yeah. So uh, this is episode eight of this podcast, and every episode that means I eight have weeks g- we've been yeah, doing this. don't say that because every episode I have said, hey, so how about we not then Rose? No, because I've done it. I'm I'm doing the promo email. Karen's put it on the test site. Horn's gonna. Go through it, do a little checky check. I yeah. hope you didn't all just ruin your ears with that squeal of my whistle. But um, update to Rose, launching this week. Yes, videos, ood, like oodles of videos of me and Karen yelling at each other. And you know, every time we've gone to launch, our testing inside the building has shown oh. problems. So what's the bet? So what's the bet that no. when, it, when it gets in the hands of yes, users? Yes, I know. There will be mistakes everywhere. And beware, if you want to giggle, have a look at all the spelling mistakes there will be for me because I have to type the text in in HTML, which guess what? doesn't have a spell checker, old HTML, Dreamweaver. Oh, yeah, it doesn't, does it? No. because You know you can type the text somewhere else and then copy oh, and paste yeah, it. Oh, yeah, yeah, whatever. So anyway, so that's going to be launched this week and it's really nice. Like we've added some really nice, th- these little info buttons where you click on it and there's all this information comes up about the product or the detail of the product. We've learned a lot about what we can do in it and yeah. we actually might end up having to really like the software. No. Oh. I mean, I still, like the problem, my problem with Rose is that the thing with software is you have conventions. Right, so like there are certain things, you know, you put the OK button on the right, not on the left, because the cancel button's on the left. You know, like there are certain things that are like standard conventions. What do they call them? Design uh, standards. Yeah, and and they are things that we kind of, as a people, have agreed. That's where we put things. You know, like that's where this this. It, how things function in a specific way. And one of the biggest problems with Rose has been our inability to combine the cart so that you can order across what we call across catalogs. But that was our understanding of the software. No, it wasn't. It was making, it was making, we were making changes that would then cause major changes within how we received orders. And that was the thing that stopped it. So the problem, my problem with Rose is that it's designed really to have a lot of flat prints. Yeah, it's designed for really simple, yeah, simple which lab. Nobody's been doing just flat prints since like Well, no, that's not true. I think there's there's not a lot of labs that are doing interesting nobody stuff. Nobody who's like making us. any money or not not no one's making any money, but nobody who's surviving and growing in this industry is just, just doing, doing flat loose prints. flat prints. Like that's it's right. just not everyone's framing or putting in a mat or putting in an album or something. And so the fact that they're their software is so antiquated beyond just uh, the limited number of products that they offer is so frustrating to us because our product range is so complex and so varied. And so every and and because the the software standards that I expect and that everybody expects in terms of the way carts work, in terms of the way add to cart, delete from cart, you know, all that stuff, it just doesn't work how you expect it to work. So if you've placed an order on on you know, insert women's clothing brand name here and bought yourself a pair of clothes, a pair of shoes or a pair of whatever, you have 
a really clear understanding of how that works. And there's variations of it, but basically it's the same. And almost none of those conventions apply in rows. Yeah. Uh, well, the big issue really is the size of our industry and the demand for the amount of sales they can make. So their development, if they had a huge market, would be so much their budget would be so much greater to make more interesting software. Yeah, movies. it's funny. I was talking to a software programmer who software engineer who is now a photographer and I won't mention his name, but he I was like, rage, rage. Just you know, why couldn't you just go to Silicon Valley and get a bunch of bored teenage boys to fix this? La 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 and he said that's not how it works. And he, he explained that, like, if you're a dude and you can program, and they're almost all dudes, soz girls, but a lot of them are, are male, um, and you can get a job for 150 grand a year at Google, yep. you're going to take that job. If you can get a job at Rose for 150 grand a year, you're not going to take that job because it's not as cool as being at Google. Um, even if for 200, they don't care about the money. They're mostly like, you know, living with their parents or whatever. So it's not, it doesn't, and, and the fact is that the Are number. You're saying we're not, we're not cool. We're not cool, babe. Come on, we know this. But the number of labs in the universe are also really um, limited. Well, that's the thing. Like that's how many labs point. are there in the world? That meant my point, I don't know, but it'd be, it'd be in the hundreds. You reckon? I think, it, I think it'd be in the hundreds. You know, I mean, we there really might be, are there might be a thousand, horses. but they're really, there's not a lot of us around. Uh, certainly the ones that are of a scale that would invest in rows and invest in good yeah. automated back ends. Because it's not cheap it, to have no, even it's very as crap expensive. as it is. Um, now you're going to do your secret lives of colour? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Moment what of colour? What have, colour? Have a guess. Green. Oh, we've done. Come on. I've got a green shirt on. What is this, black? Blue. That's not a friggin' blue jumper. It is. It is black, my friend. So this is not blue. So it matches with your bloody mic. Dickhead. It's blue. Okay, my favourite colour. Oh, is it? How do you not know it's my favourite colour? Well, I'm always surprised because I expect it to change. How many thousands of things has Jenny change. bought me that are blue? Let's talk about blue, baby. Oh, God. Eve Klein Blue, can we do that? Sorry? Eve Klein Blue. Oh, Eve Klein Actually, I think it's mentioned here somewhere. I haven't actually pulled out Eve Klein Blue. And Indigo, my favourite. Indigo, indigo. yeah. Um, so let's talk about how Indigo is made. So it can be made from many different species of plant. <laughs> Here we go. All right. No, I'm no, I'm not going to. I'm not going to. Sitting down for your moment of fucking. I'm not. Color I'm not going through. Because it I'm just not going, takes so long. All right, go. We're just talking go, about woad here. here. It's one of the most coveted is woad for producing indigo. Indigo ferra tinctoria for dye producing. It's a workhorse and is a pretty shrub with small, slightly dusty green leaves, pink blooms that look like miniature sweet peas and dangling seed pods. So wode was the main, main, main species that made it. And indigo is the most colour fast of naturally occurring dyes, which is absolutely fantastic. I did an indigo shibori class with my... Um, cult leader Megan Morton and um, Joanna, somebody who is the, we'll put it in the show notes, write it down, show notes. Um, the, you can write it down, you can. Uh, the shibori is the most amazing thing. It's like tie dyeing, but way prettier. And indigo is the weirdest thing because you put it in this black sort of 
pussing, weird, smoky. Pussing? Yeah, like it's got this. It's got this it's thing got on the foamy cho- head on top. It's got a thing. Yeah, I think they call it the mother. Pass, well, just the mother it's is foaming. The then mother is kombucha. Yeah, but I think this is also what they call this creature that sits on oh, top. Right. And then you put it. You put this the fabric in there, and when you pull it out, it's like turquoise. And then as the oxygen hits it, it goes that deep. Yeah. Um, uh, you don't care. No, no, you I, do, that I do. I do. Whatever. No, I've no, got no. a time frame. We're at no, twenty-four no. minutes. I mentioned that apart. because. There was uh, William, you know, William I, Morris. William Morris. So I'm now flipping, I'm now jumping based on what you were saying. This is active listening at work. <laughs> so William Morris, yeah. uh, so we're talking about 1880s, Post, right? Yeah. <laughs> he shunned many of the new, he shunned many of the new synthetic, synthetic dyes available, preferring vegetable and mineral-based ones. So William Morris did all the wallpaper, you know, the beautiful... Inter- I know. I know, but William our listeners might not. William Bloody Morris is. Uh, the, uh, listeners might not. One of his favourite tricks while showing visitors to Merton Abbey, um, skeins of wool being dipped into the deep vats of woad, they would emerge almost a grassy colour and then before the astonished eyes of his visitors, they would turn first a deep sea green and then a resonant blue. Yep. Um, So I thought what was interesting about indigo was from the beginning, um, uh, indigo, well not from the beginning, but it was started off as a luxury colour, right? But it quickly became the blue colour, blue collar colour. Yeah. Right? Because so I have also an obsession, an obsession with French vintage, antique, ideally if, if I ever had the budget, um, workers' uh, gotcha. jackets. You gotcha. Can so buy not only in Etsy Europe. And they're so, th- so beautiful. So put it in the show notes. We'll put it in the show notes. So Cassie St. Clair also mentions that not only in Europe but in J- Japan and China as well where the dusty blue Mao suit became ubiquitous in the 20th century. So the Mao, the, the colour of the Mao workers oh, was blue. Oh, you said mouse. Mao. <laughs> like squeak, squeak, Mao mouse. Suit. No, mice don't have suits. No, they sure. They have fur. Um, well, you know. Strange enough, this workwear association has proved the pigment's most enduring legacy it's in the beautiful. form of blue jeans. Ah, oh, my second favourite thing in the world. I know. I'm I have amazing. more blue jeans than hot dinners. So we talked about William Morris. What else did I find here that I loved? Oh my God, this was. This I can't was believe how beautiful that your fa- the colours for today was blue, and you didn't tell me because I could have worn seven thousand things know, that were blue. I know. I know. Instead, you, I'm wearing you done a it boring so, bloody. So listen shirt. to this. The I just. I think Cassia, she's such a poet. It's beautiful. She talks about cerulean, yep, which is a beautiful blue. So let me read this little little section. Okay, get ready, kids. On seventeenth of February, nineteen o one, Carlos Casagemas, was it Casagemas, Spanish poet and artist, was having drinks with his friend in the smart new Parisian cafe Lipodrome near Montmartre when he pulled out a gun and shot himself in the right temple. Seriously, listen. His friends were distraught, none so more than Pablo Picasso, who never quite recovered from watching his sister die from diphtheria six years previously. His grief cast a pall over his work for several years. He abandoned his, almost the entire palette except for one colour that could adequately express his grief yep. and lost blue. And then right at the back of this, um, when photographer and writer Brassai ran into Picasso's Parisian paint supplier in November 1943, the man handed him a piece of white paper filled with Picasso's handwriting. At first glance, it looks like a poem, wrote Brassai, but he realised it was actually Picasso's last paint order. Third on the list, just below white, permanent, white, silver, 
is blue cerulean. Beautiful. Isn't that gorgeous? His blue period work is staggering. I mean, the self-portrait of his is so... Yeah, it's lovely. I Actually, the blue section, because blue is my favourite colour, if you haven't already guessed, I have gotten so many things I wanted to read, but I... I, you know, Blue section is the best section. It's, it's the awesome. biggest section So too. I would encourage you guys to pick up the book and have a, have a good read because there's so many tales and we're just putting little bits out and I want to encourage people to go and buy Cassie's book and, and have a good read because it's just a, it's a lovely yeah. bunch of stories. It is. So that's it. That's your moment of colour. What do we talk about now? Well, that's it, isn't it? What are, we, what are we doing? All the shops are opening up. Everyone's going to the bloody David Jones and the supermarket and all mingling and being dickheads. And the kids are all kissing and cuddling. I know. And we're going to have wave two. The second wave is going to be on its way in, what, so, three weeks' time? Or it might, might not. Yeah. Pig's ass. It's totally so, going to happen. I'm already, I'm already stocking up. I'm doing the bulk buying. I'm doing so the gonna panic. So you're going to leave this podcast on a bummer? Oh, shit. Well, that's my job, isn't it? No. I drag us down to reality. You fly us off into positivity. And we ended in a beautiful but sad poetic a notion I from know. Pablo Were Picasso. you going to bloody fill me with Pablo Picasso sadness? I know it is. His work's sad. beautiful, but he was a narcissistic monster. But, but see now, double what, bad. Tell me, tell me five things you can hear. Oh, for fuck's sake! <laughs> no, I'm just trying to say, like, <laughs> what it is. Oh my god! Those of you who don't for the microphone. Oh, shut up! What it is now. What you need to do is remember right now what's going on. And is everyone okay? Everyone's okay. Everyone in our world is close to us is okay. Yes. People are excited. Children are annoyed because they have homework. People are excited about getting we, back to things. Well, I've had we my saw first, my mum. I've had my first email from a school photographer who's gone to shoot a school next week. Really? Yep. So we are rolling back in gear. And South Australia knows how to go back to lockdown. South Australia knows how to social We distance. basically live in lockdown anyway. Oh. I mean, someone said... We that, don't leave it. That's why we had such success because we're all a bunch of losers no, who some, never leave the house anyway. Someone <laughs> said to me back in the beginning, oh, it's just like one or more on a Saturday afternoon any rate. <laughs> oh, fuck them. <laughs> Anyhow. Um, hey, thanks for listening. And um, remember... Remember? It's what's right next to you. It's your family. It's your friends that matter. This yes, is why the rest I married of, you. The rest of the world absolutely matters, but don't let it pull you down. Okay? Yeah, don't listen to too many Trump podcasts. That's my problem. Too much Trump today. Well, everybody, uh, till next week. We love you. Love you. Bye. Bye. Bye.